Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel, Kim, and Chris. On today's Wimbledon Round Four catch-up, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. Shokovic overcomes her catch test. Sviontek survives match points. And Christopher Eubanks' dream run continues. Chris, today is the 10th of July and we are here to catch up. On round four of Wimbledon, our quarter-finalists in the singles are almost, almost set. We've got Carlos Alcaraz, Matteo Berrettini going on at the moment. But uh, yeah, we're in We're in week two. I almost want to start afresh at Wimbledon. We had all the rain delays, all the chaos uh, last week. And yeah, can we, just, can we just start anew this week? I feel like, Joel, I would love to start anew because my predictions have been so bad across collector set <laughs> and quarter by quarter that for me, this is a whole new tournament than what I thought I would be talking about. I mean, Kim has already been messaging us because she got the quarterfinalist predictions on the ladies' singles in the bottom half all correct, 100%, which uh, we have to give her some kudos on. So uh, well done, Kim. But um, yeah, we're going to be talking about all the the women's action uh, from today, the men's action as well, as well as yesterday. And also, all importantly, the collector set tournament update. I know you've been slaving away getting everyone's predictions um, into our spreadsheet. So we're going to be updating our listeners on that later. I mean, the last time the last time we spoke um, was before you you went to Wimbledon. You've been on Centre Court, I believe, a couple of times. And one of those times involved being in the queue. And, you know, the question on the question on my lips is how was your queue experience? Because we had Kim's point of view and she said it went very, very well for her, probably in the minority there. But I want to hear what was your queue experience like last week? Well, I have to say I did have the advantage of having Kim's insight before going. So in terms of time of arrival, in terms of her experience of uh, of knowing what it was like on that first day. So I wasn't going into it blind. Um, I am not a camper, I will say up front. Um, we need so to, the- I'm already thinking, we need like Kim's secret queue diary that we could make a make a book of. I feel like it would sell sell millions. I really think it would. I think um, for all the people that had difficulty in the queue this year, mm. I think they would be looking at purchasing it. Ooh, that's for sure. Business especially, opportunity, especially if it's not tennis an weekly official going to branch out into 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 publications, publications and jigsaws. I believe there's a market <laughs> for. Um, but no, it was it was a very positive experience. I think um, it's quite it's quite low key. It's more low key than I thought it would be. And we, I was number three hundred five and three hundred six in the queue. Um, which means we did get a centre court ticket. So already it feels like it's worthwhile, especially because uh, we were queuing for what would be a fantastic day on centre with the likes of mm. um, almost what unprecedented having the number one and number two seed for the men on the same day. Because they and were Murray Sitsipas. And then Murray Sitsipas got added as well as the world number one for women. So 
you couldn't have asked for a better day to queue for and more motivation to survive the queue. Um, for those who like their sleep, I would say potentially it's it's not the best one because you are woken up about 5.15 um, to pack up your stuff. But in terms of my experience, I did think that there would be one queue so that the first 300 people would get in before anyone else. But this year, it seems to be a bit different where they kind of get you lined up by what ticket you've purchased, whether it's centre, court one, or court two. And they try and let in even numbers of people for each of those courts, including ground passes, um, which seems a bit odd to me because I do think if you've camped, I'd quite like to enter the ground so I can get myself onto court three and watch Holgaruna play um, and make sure I can get that seat. So I think there are lots of positives to it, but there's a couple of things that I would kind of um, advise people that might make it into Kim's book, which is to um, ask at each of the desks when you get in to purchase tickets, which sections they have, because they all get a book of tickets. And if you want a specific section, you need to go to the right individual selling those tickets. So for people who are really in the trenches of tennis, there's, you know, everyone knows your 104s from your 112s. I'm writing um, that down as we speak. Exactly. But I think you're writing down kind of more the details of maybe uh, improving your Amex so you can get into the corporate areas <laughs> for entertainment. Um, but overall, I would say like, it, it is great. It's such a fun vibe. And you do make wonderful queue mates. And I think that's something that's so nice about it. Mm. So um, shout out to Rufus, Chrissy, uh, and John. Um, and one thing I have to say for just to, to wrap up the queue section, Joel, is that we camped next to someone called Rufus who did not bring a tent. He just sat wow. on a chair. Wow. And that's a bold move. It's a bold move. He said it was too much faff. Um, he did not have a great evening, um, unsurprisingly. So um, he, did he just sleep in a chair? He just sat, uh, sat on the chair and then he tried to walk around to stay warm. And then it's very funny, the idea of having that camping experience and then suddenly being in the very luxurious centre court. You essentially slept rough the night before, haven't had a shower and everyone else looks lovely. So... Um, I think that was a real surprise. But if you can survive that, then you've earned your centre court ticket, I believe. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, you you were treated, I feel, to to that order of play um, that we spoke about. What was that on the, on the Friday? And then you also got to see all the action on centre court on the Saturday, which is going to be coming very, very handy oh, for us. Sunday, because... The Sunday, indeed. Oh, sorry, the Sunday. Yes, that's it. Yes. And that, that is going to be very handy for us because that is what we're going to be talking about in the second half of the pod. Well, that's but, why I went, Joel, just so I wouldn't have to do... <laughs> I know, I exactly. Tennis. Really, really tough, really tough for you just to be on centre court, to be just feasting job, on uh, all, all that tennis. Yeah, very tough job. But um, yeah, before we get into that, we're going to be talking about day eight uh, today and all the fourth round matches that happened today. And we also had Novak Djokovic versus Hubert Hercage come over from yesterday but let's start with the women's matches and uh yeah we've got four quarter finalists from this half Onsia Bohr, Irina Sabalenka, Madison Keys, and Elena Rabakina. I want to start with Onsia Bohr versus Petra Kvitova because this was a match I had circled circled out thinking this is going to be an absolute ding-dong Petra Kvitova's in great form Onsia Bohr Wimbledon runner-up last year, and it was a complete blowout. Onzibor bageled Kvitova in the first set, 6-love, then ran away with the, the second set, 6-3. Chris, what was going on with Petra Kvitova? I was shocked by this. I genuinely had to double-take in terms of the results here because it's not like in the head-to-head -head it's particularly one-sided in the past. No. It's, if anything, it's obviously in... 
Kvitova's favour um, with the fact that she has actually won four of their five encounters going into this. That was very surprising to me. But what was more surprising is that in a match, Kvitova only hit four winners. Um, and I think, sure, maybe she's making some errors. That's part of her game. But even when she makes errors, she makes more than four winners when she steps onto court. Sometimes four winners in a game. Um, so clearly everything wasn't working. Um, and I'm not even sure that, I mean, Jabut obviously played quite clean tennis, but it wasn't like she kind of played out of her skin. Her numbers were not unbelievable. So it's just a case of the worst case scenario for a tennis player is that you go onto court and you just can't find the court. Yeah, it was a really sh- strange match because, as, as you said, Kvitova, four winners, 26 unforced errors, not great numbers. And even Madison if you look Key's at... Madison Keys numbers. Madison Keys numbers. I mean, we'll get onto that, but yeah, exactly. And Onzibor as well. I mean, she hit 44% first serves in so to think she won a match love and three with that on her first serve uh, yeah it's it feels it feels very very odd I mean let's let's talk about Ons Jabor though because you know she is into the quarterfinals she's facing Rabakina next which is going to be a rematch of last year's final I'm not going to lie there was not much I feel in the build-up to suggest she was going to make the quarterfinals I think she had a round one exit in Berlin Round two exit to Georgie in Eastbourne. Are you surprised Onjabor has got here? Or are you like, actually, I can make sense of that given her past performances at Wimbledon? I think it's very hard to know uh, with Ons in terms of how she's going to perform. Mm. Even on kind of days when she is up, she can still lose a match sometimes. I've seen that before um, and, it's, and vice versa. She can be playing very badly and all it takes is kind of one um, or two kind of shots and points to turn it around and then suddenly kind of she she gets an uplift from that she does play with her heart on her sleeve and how she's feeling is so important to that but clearly she loves being at Wimbledon and she's played some inspired tennis so it's it's one of those things where crazy things happen at Wimbledon and people either bring it or they kind of buckle under the pressure I think and clearly she's someone who after that run last year, is really inspired to do something great despite not having the form coming in. And Kvitova, maybe it was the weight of a little bit of that expectation because when you think about it, at this stage of her career, would you think that she would be one of the favourites for the title um, heading into her fourth round match? I think you probably wouldn't. Um, and she hasn't been this far in a while. So potentially it could be because she wanted a bit too much for, for Kvitova and, and Ons wants that title that she missed out last year. I think for Yabor, she's certainly going to be motivated by what happened last year. I mean, she was a setup in that final against Rabakina, and now she's got the opportunity for revenge because Rabakina came through. Beatrice had admire, had admire, had to withdraw with a back injury, retired 4-1 down. Now, this was, I think, a great shame because this was uh, another match I was fascinated by because these are two have games that I feel are tailor-made for the grass court. I was expecting long baseline rallies, um, incredible shot making. And it was really sad because I feel like we were just robbed of that that opportunity. And, um, you know, I really feel sorry for, for Haddad Meyer given the, the tears that were on the, on the court. She, you know, she really did try to to play on and a little bit like on Zubor does you know wear her heart on her sleeve at times I feel like sometimes the whole of South America is uh, is is watching her but um do you think Rabakina will be happy that she came through this with minimal time on on court um against a really dangerous opponent or do you think she would have been like actually I wanted a bit more of a test there 
it's hard. It's hard to know because she does seem like someone who would quite spend as little time on court as possible. Um, I do feel like that's kind of her MO is that mm. if she's not able to play, she'll retire or she won't step on the court. And if she's on the court, she wants to get it done. Um, and so I don't think she'd have been looking to, to have a long match against Haddad Meyer. I think that's the sort of match that Haddad Meyer really likes to make physical. And especially if you're Rebecca, where you haven't had necessarily the um, autoimmune fitness that you'd have hoped for and um, kind of the attrition that you'd want kind of coming into some of these um, long matches. Um, for her, she had that three-set match in the first round against Shelby Rogers. She came through that um, tight second set against Cornet, and then she blitzed um, Bolter. So keeping herself as fresh as possible for the second week and moving into the quarterfinals, I think, is, is the best way for her to go. So I think, she, if anything, she'd be more, it's more of a shame for the fans that it, mm. she wasn't able to, to play a match um, because it's such a different day on centre court than some of the matches we've seen. This was five games and we've had matches that have gone almost I mean, four hours plus. So um, I would say it is a big shame for the spectators and for Haddad Maya, but for Rabakina, I don't think she'll feel at all kind of um, concerned by the fact she spent minimal time on court this couple, last couple of uh, weeks. Yeah, because it's interesting because Rebecca is having a little bit of the the rub of the green at the moment because Cornet had that that injury that um, sort of ended her competitiveness in in round two, and now had Admire. So um, yeah, she's going to be feeling fresh fresh as a daisy for the it's a bit like the Rome draw, Joel, isn't yeah. it? Where everyone just <laughs> yes, everyone just falling by the wayside for for Rebecca. Um, yeah, but I mean, yeah, we're going to get repeats of last year's ladies singles final where, as I said, your ball was a setup. Rabakina came back to to win in three sets. Now, Rabakina through four matches has won 32 of 33 service games, has just faced only seven break points. Can you see, can you make any sort of argument for Yabor to get revenge? Or do you think this is Rabakina's to lose? I think it's, again, it's a hard one because coming into this, neither of them were kind of a known quantity. They hadn't been playing the tennis. We saw them play earlier in the season or last year in the case of Shabur, obviously she's had some good results um I have got every prediction wrong so far Joel but with this one <laughs> I think it might be a little bit like last year's final where Ons does have the game to make a player like Rabakina really struggle in terms of the variety in terms of what she could do in terms of throwing in drop shots slices um lobs different spins and I think if she's able to put that together I think she can weave a web that makes it very difficult for Rabakina. But at the same time, Rabakina can serve you off the court and also she can blast a return. So it's going to be tricky because Rabakina has more in her game this year than she did last year. She's got much more um, kind of a volley, uh, much more volley experience. It's definitely been a focus of her training. So it's going to set itself up and I'd love it to go to three. But I do think, as you kind of said, that based on what we've seen in the last few slams um, and in some of the big tournaments, you'd have to think Rebecca would be your player to bet on. I think if I was in Jabor's shoes, I would almost be a little bit disappointed in terms of how Kvitova played because you'd think Kvitova would be a really good sort of first test or, or a test to get you ready for someone like a Rebecca in terms of how you know they're both big hitters from the baseline like to paint the lines with with winners and I think from Jabor she may even be a little bit frustrated that Kvitova didn't bring that more because it maybe would have prepared her even better for this rematch with Rabakina. 
Yeah, completely. It's almost the perfect like pre-match um, in terms of how they play, where at times it will be completely off your racket. It will be on your opponent's racket. And I guess in this case, the only thing that you can say is that if someone is not playing well, um, who is going for a lot of shots and is missing them, then making sure that you control your end of the court is just as important. And that is what Ons did today, uh, once she played today. Um, but I don't think we've seen a case where Rebecca has kind of just fallen apart because she does play with more margin than Kibitova and she does favor the cross courts rather than the down the line shots, which give you that extra bit of cover over the net. So I think it's going to be um, a difficult test. And I do think given how little rhythm she probably got off the ball from Kibitova today, um, she might be spending a few more extra hours on the practice court to get some <laughs> play ahead of that match. Well, another two big hitters that are through to the quarterfinals are Arena Sabalenka and Madison Keys. I want to start with Madison Keys versus Mira Andreva. There was a flashpoint that we're going to come on to um, in a minute, but Keys came through this 3 6, 7 6, 6 2. Quintessential Madison Keys fashion. She was 6 3, 4 1 down. Andreva had a point, I think, for 5 1. And. And that was as good as it got. Um, I think for Keys, it really turned on uh, a moment of brilliance where I think she hit like a, a left-handed forehand winner cross court. Um, how impressed have you been with, with Madison Keys? Back into a quarterfinal for the first time at Wimbledon since 2015. Did you think this moment was, was going to ever come? I think many of us thought that after that incredible Australian Open that she played where she reached the semifinals and played some of the best tennis I've seen, of anyone, I think, when she, I mean, she made Paula Badosa, who was really informed, look very, very ordinary. ordinary. And she can do that, but we just haven't seen that from her. Um, and so, again, this was kind of a textbook match from her where she doesn't necessarily have that game or the B game. Or the um, consistency. Or the consistency. And so when uh, I watched that final of Eastbourne, even that, you think it's really hard for her to get over the line with because she mm. doesn't necessarily know she's going to make more shots than she'll miss. Um, very similar to Kvitova, but I do think the benefit of Madison Keys is that it is finer in terms of she'll hit a lot of unforced errors, but she does hit a lot of winners. And that obviously wasn't what happened for Kvitova. Um, but with Keys, I mean, it's we've always said this. She has the big, uh, big, big match game. She has massive serve. She hits well off both wings. She's a pretty good mover and that's only kind of improved. But she just doesn't have that mental strength in those big moments, I don't think, and um, to really back herself. And she can get in her head and she can get really frustrated and get her head down at the moment. So I think in the Sabalenka match, it sets itself up for kind of the perfect match that she likes. She likes a hard ball. She likes a lot of pace. And it's the players that kind of mix that up or don't hit it as hard or do sort of give you that variety that do cause her like a lot of problem. If you look at the players she's played, the closest match she's had is against Golubic, who obviously one-handed backhand, a lot of slice, going to have to get really low for that. Against Pearl and Marta Kostjuk, that's her bread and butter um, in terms of a, a ball she can handle. Um, and so when it comes to Sabalenka, I think if, she's, if she could pick someone to play in the quarterfinal stage, this is a pretty good matchup for her. But I mean, it's tough. Do you think though Andreeva will be disappointed? Because I think, you know, there's an argument to say, you know, she's what, she's 16 years old. Was this a, a, a match where she had it on her racket, but her inexperience on the tour ultimately counted against her? And, and that is when Keys capitalised. Yeah, I think um, it's hard to put matches away. You know, it can be very, very close. 
um, and it can all hinge on one point here or there and, and that happens in all matches. So I don't think it necessarily comes down to inexperience because you've seen this so many times with different players. I mean, we saw it, we'll talk about this, with Bencic, someone with great experience and we've seen it with people like um, Hercat, which we'll talk about as well. There's a couple of points in matches that can change everything and you have to be able to cope with that and deal with that. That is the nature of the sport. Um, these are athletes competing at the highest level and no match is easy to put away. And people who do the best and have the champions mentality, they are people who even when they aren't playing that well or even when they're on those tight moments, they do make other players beat them um, as well as being aggressive and going for it. And it's so hard to know like how to play some of those big points because it is a balancing act. And obviously the best in the business of that is Novak Djokovic. Um, but there's, there's no harm at all in the fact that, you know, losing a tight set when you're up because how many top players do that? All of them at times. So there's so much to take from this. I mean, winning five matches at Wimbledon from qualifiers qualifying, yeah. and yeah. having a shot at the quarterfinals, it's just, it's an unbelievable achievement. So she should be very proud of that. Absolutely. And you've got to think at this age, there's that, that cliche of, you know, a loss, a, a loss in the short term can have so much, so many gains in, in the longer term. And I think she'll really kind of learn from this moment. Yes, she will be disappointed right now, not being able to reach the, the second week, given the position she was in. But um, yeah, I think in, in you know, the longer it goes on, I think, yeah, she can call upon this when she comes to, to future Grand Slams. I mean, there's one moment we need to talk about, and that was leading to the match point for Keys because Andreeva did get a point penalty for what the umpire saw as a, a racket throw. Now, this has caused a lot of debate um, amongst tennis fans on, on social media and in, in the grounds in terms of, was this a throw or did this just come out of the hands because of a, a slip? What did you what did you make of this? What did you make of this moment? And did you think the umpire got it right? I mean, I've seen uh, players do a lot worse than not get a warning. Um, as far as I was concerned, there's no reason for a warning at all. It looked like it was a continuation. Ooh, okay. Do we think, definitely uh, have different views. Because I watched it. It looked like it was a continuation of a movement where she just released the racket at the end. This wasn't someone slamming a racket on the ground, I didn't think. Um, maybe I've watched the wrong clip based on your reaction because <laughs> I looked at what we were tweeting out on the, on the account today and I, I just thought, oh, can we please stop putting people who have barely put a foot wrong under the spotlight that this when so many male players get away with absolute murder um, for all sorts of different things. And as far as malice goes, I mean, this really isn't something that's too too bad at all. I thought it was a throw. I, I get that she... Sl I think she slipped, first of all. But then I do think there was some downward force in terms of her racket clattering in the ground. She chose to let go of it. Absolutely. Yes, she did. But was this a bad one? No. I don't necessarily think it was a, a, a bad one, but I do think there was some aggression there. And I think, personally, that the point penalty was vindicated. But I do think, again, it's another learning moment for her. I think she's been kind of talked about as almost the golden girl of the, uh, you know, the ladies singles. So it was quite almost like a little bit of a shock to see her get a, a get a point penalty. And she obviously didn't agree with it. But um, yeah, I think it will be something she will definitely learn from in the future. Well, I mean, it's competitive tennis, you know, people get angry, people get annoyed, people <laughs> yes. say all sorts of abusive things to umpires that don't get warnings, people swear. Andy Murray, for example, her idol, no one swears more on court than Andy Murray does. Has he ever got a warning for it in the last five years? 
basically no. Um, so I do think when we put this in the spotlight, I think we should put the spotlight on some of our most uh, heroed people because for me, that's always been very difficult um, to kind of uh, come to terms with, with the fact that, you know, not everyone is perfect when it comes to this and someone who is yelling audible obscenities on centre court, um, who's obviously frustrated with how they're playing, um, that isn't the thing we're talking about. It's the fact that a 16-year-old may have thrown a racket because she was frustrated she lost a point. So yeah. it's on it's definitely on the it's definitely on the softer end, I think, it's of, more the, of the spectrum. It's, you can debate it, I think, is why we're talking about it, right? Because it is did she, didn't she? <laughs> um and whenever anyone questions it, I guess it is um mm. kind of on the amusing side. But from umpires, I just want them to make like better, more consistent calls. Um, across the board like if this was a racket throw then there's I've seen quite a few things this uh, last week which I probably think also was a racket throw well moving on from the golden girl I would say of the of the ladies singles championships and one of the the talk of the event so far we've got to move on to I would say the golden boy of the uh the men's singles Christopher Eubanks uh defeating Stefanos Sissipas in five sets Three six seven six three six six four six four. The dream run continues, Chris. This is his ninth appearance in a major. Has never advanced beyond round two, and is now in his maiden quarterfinal first ever top five ranking triumph. This wasn't in the script. This wasn't meant to happen. He did not know how to unlock the the Stefanos Sissipas serve for the good part of that match. So across those first three sets. The story is, the story is, it keeps going. It does. Um, and it's unbelievable, you know, that he was able to to do this. And especially, it's so hard to back up a great result the week before a slam. We've seen so many players do really well, pick up a warm-up tournament, and then they crash out early. So that's something I think is really impressive because he's probably never played this much tennis in his life before. Um, certainly the longest he's gone on a winning streak after winning that title. Um, and it just shows, you know, that... It's something where if you are able to get your head in the right space and you're able to focus on what your game is, so many of these players have the ability mm. to be able to put on performances like this. Um, and for him to be able to do the age of 27, only nine appearances in a major, I mean, it's something where you would not think that this would be a matchup on paper where he'd be able to do this. It's so different when it's someone who's 20, you know, who is up and coming who has reached some further um, rounds at major. So it's a, it's an insane story. I think it's something that he said, it's absolutely insane himself. And um, it does seem to be one of those things where no one would have picked it. And maybe the fact that people haven't had that much experience playing against him actually does favor him when it comes to playing against top players like Sitsipas, who probably didn't know much about Eubanks' game before he took it to court and played him today. And I just love the energy he brings to the court. I think it's infectious. I think the fans um, love it. And it, it, even though, you know, these are, you know, big, these are big moments for, for his career, given, you know, w- you know, where he was. He was he was commentating for, for Tennis Channel not, not that long ago. So um, to see him sort of take in these moments and not be phased by them, I think that is really, really impressive. And I think that's why we're seeing him be so competitive because he's not scared of the moment. He's really here to... You know, to to take it by take it by the horns, and um, that's what he did against um, Sefnos Sissipas, who will be disappointed. I think you know he's played a lot of tennis, and maybe that caught up to him ultimately um, in the end. I feel like he's he's played pretty much 
every single day of the, the championship so far. Um, but yeah, this will certainly be a missed opportunity for him. Eubanks now has Daniel Medvedev, who came through Yuri Lehechka. Lehechka had to retire um, with an injury. Medvedev was leading 6-4, 6-2. Chris, very quickly on this, it was a little bit disappointing, I felt. You know, it was a very competitive first set. And then all of a sudden, you know, Lehechko, I think, got a, a blister on his foot and it really restricted his movements. And from that moment on, the writing was on the wall. I think it was a case where he knew that his movement wasn't great and he was obviously hitting pretty big. Um, it's just, it is always a shame. It's such a shame because... When you see players at, at this stage and have these opportunities, um, you'd never want to have to retire from Wimbledon. And I think the same with Hadad Meyer. Of all the tournaments, you're not going to retire unless it's absolutely necessary. And even though kind of Medvedev didn't necessarily think it looked like he was too restricted, um, you've got to take a Wimbledon retirement very seriously um, because no one would want to do that. And it wasn't like he had anything to lose playing another set because he had put on a decent showing and it looked like it probably wasn't going to go his way. Um, but I guess it probably was because he knew he couldn't go five sets if he needed to win it, um, which I think is probably when he knew that that was probably game over for him. Um, and there's no point making it worse if you didn't need to. So that is a big shame. And it is always hard to know when to retire. But Daniel Medvedev does march on and it does now mean he has reached the quarterfinals of all the Grand Slams. So I think that's that's a pretty decent achievement. I don't think he was too... Finally, like, Joel. <laughs> I don't think he was too bothered by it when it was it was told to him um, post-match. But, you know, I remember like a few years ago when we were all kind of salivating over that that hardcourt streak um, that he had. And I think, you know, he had a little bit of like, is Daniel Medvedev a hardcourt specialist? But the fact that he has now reached the quarterfinals of all Grand Slams, I think it just shows that... You know, this season, I think he's shown maybe French Open aside, but certainly in, in Rome, he's got a game that can, you know, show that he can win tournaments on all the court surfaces. Yeah, I think it's definitely a, a really positive thing. Um, I think lots of us probably hadn't realised um, that he hadn't reached the quarterfinal at all of the slams. The only reason why I do know that is because we talked about it on the podcast that Berrettini was the first person um, and I mucked up as like, oh, first person born in the 2000s, I said, yes. or noughties, or I remember I got it wrong. But uh, it's because uh, Sinner was the person from his generation, from his decade, who did that first. Um, so when you put it into the context that Yannick Sinner has done that already, and that was coming up to, what was it, six months ago, he did it in Australia, maybe. Um, it does feel like that this is kind of a bit of a non-news because it might not be that it's his best surface. Same with the French Open and that when he does sort of play um, in these matches, he's very much taking it a match at a time or a result by a at a time. And, you know, he lost early at the French. Um, you might go further at Wimbledon. You might not have a great US Open. I feel like it's um, across a career, it's surprising. But in terms of how his year's going, I think it probably is something that, from a slam performance side of things, a first round exit, you wouldn't expect to go out first round the next time. So he wasn't very, he wasn't thrilled by it though, but no, well, he, he, won, he was, he was thrilled by playing on, on court one. He, he's, he, he almost kind of pleaded to the tournament organizers to keep him on court one. Cause I think he said he's won all his matches there. He doesn't want to be on center. So well, I'm like curious to, finish to see matches, Joel, right? He'd like to finish them. <laughs> I'm fascinated to see if uh, the, uh, the tournament organizers will comply. I somehow don't think they will, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll have a look. I mean, another quarterfinal we have set up in the men's event is Carlos Alcaraz versus Holger Runa, which is going to be a very 
very tasty encounter. Alcaraz coming through Berrettini in four sets. Runa also coming through in four sets against Dimitrov. Who who impressed you more, Alcaraz against Berrettini or, or Runa against Dimitrov? Because Alcaraz Berrettini, I, I put it on our socials. I asked uh, our listeners, was Berrettini the favourite going into that match? And it was very... It was very, very 50-50. Which is kind of surprising because why would you bet against Carlos Alcaraz this year? Um, I think given the fact he also won Queens and Berrettini has shown little to no form, um, I would have always said that Alcaraz was the famous uh, favorite favorite for this one. I know that you uh, were in agreement with a certain Nick Kyrgios who <laughs> said that he called it. After Berrettini took that first set. He did. Um, and then, obviously, it did not go quite the same way. And um, Alcaraz has now gone through. So I think it's it's a case where if this had come a little bit later in the season, it could have been a bit of a different result. Um, but for someone like Alcaraz, I think he's just so good at returning. And when I saw him play, when was it? On the, the, the Friday, um, when he was on center court, it was unbelievably impressive what he was able to do i think probably of performances um that i've seen it's in the top two in terms of what he was able to do on a grass court because the variety the the i mean the lobs he hits a pinpoint and the hustle he has is unbelievable um it's such a complete game that he does have so when it comes to a player like berrettini he does have those dips um and those lapses and his serve is very much that he has a fantastic serve, but has a big forehand. We've always talked about the backhand being a weakness. And Alcaraz is way too good not to exploit that or to find a way to let that kind of come into the match more. Um, but I mean, it still is a good showing for Berrettini personally. I, I thought it would be straight sets Alcaraz. So um, it's it's fine for me to say that in hindsight, though, Joel. I see you're like thinking, did he, did he really think that? And probably yeah, I, I, still, I, still, I still personally don't think we've seen peak Alcaraz yet um, on the grass. I think we saw better grass court tennis from him at, at Queens, to be quite honest with you. So, you know, I'm still waiting for or, or for that moment for him to almost, uh, to me, live up to being the number one seed. And I think he's going to need to do that, I think, against Holger Runa. He's going to be so hungry, I think, to kind of get one on, on one of his kind of fellow up-and-coming players. You know, Runa came through Dimitrov in, in four and that I thought was entertaining and Dimitrov did push him at times. But um, I, I don't know. Could you could you could you see Holger Runa giving an upset to Carlos Alcaraz, given he's got more variety in his locker than a, than a Matteo Berrettini? Well, I mean, it would have been at one point it looked like we were going to get a Dimitrov Berrettini <laughs> quarterfinal. Which I mean, I that would have been wild. People, yeah, it would have been wild. Most people did not have that. Um, uh, forecast especially when we saw the draw so I think it's going to be an interesting match and I think you have to kind of ignore what's gone before because it is about how you, you play the match on the day between those two because beating some of the players that Holger Rune has played coming through I mean he's made it pretty blooming hard on himself um, he's not kind of played his best tennis mm. at all but he hasn't been, you know, on centre court. He's kind of been He's going to love grounds. it. He's going to love it I think he will love center. it. And I think when you play against someone who's very much your peer, I do think it adds that extra element of um, competition and that extra element where we've seen Carlos literally buckle under the pressure in Paris. And he really will want to make sure that this isn't the same. But that actually adds even more pressure to it. So 
I think that Hogarun has nothing to lose. Um, and probably when it comes to expectation, I think he's just expecting himself to play better than he has done the rest of the tournament. But he should be pretty pleased he's made it to the quarterfinals because the set that I saw him play um, before I headed over to centre court was very much not convincing. He was a bit of out of sorts in terms of uh, his game because when he puts it together, big serve, aggressive ground strokes, transitions well, you think, why can't he do that every point? And he just seems to be losing his way time and time again in some of these long matches. So Alcaraz the favourite, but I think this could be a match that goes the distance. It might be the case the winner will be the one who is able to perform at their at their best because uh, you could arguably say both players haven't haven't done that just yet but um center court quarterfinals with a semi-final on the line that should provide it's, it's an ex- it's such an exciting matchup and i it think it's one provide enough the motivation draw. especially as exactly. you said with the kind of peer versus peer aspect to it um at a, on a grand slam stage yeah i think that is going to be a very fiery encounter but we're going to take a quick break now but join us in the second half where we will be taking a look back on day seven, middle Sunday from Wimbledon. So do not go anywhere. This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. NordVPN is a virtual private network, which means it protects your internet connection and privacy online. VPNs create an encrypted tunnel for your data, protecting your online identity by hiding your IP address. But what does this mean for our Tennis Weekly listeners? Well, we chose to partner with NordVPN because it will allow you to watch tennis wherever you are. With NordVPN, you can connect to servers around the world. So when you're looking to watch live tennis and get that pesky message, this stream is not available in your market, all you have to do is open NordVPN, click on a location and you'll be connected in seconds. Personally, I've been using NordVPN for the last two years since I moved to Denmark allowing me to still connect to my UK streaming services and watch all the tennis matches I need to in order to provide the best analysis I can every week on the podcast. So if you're looking to watch every court at Wimbledon, but you can't in your market, or you're on your summer holiday and want to keep up on all the action from SW19, then NordVPN has you covered. Download NordVPN today with our exclusive deal at NordVPN slash Tennis Weekly but make sure you use our link to secure the best deal and support the podcast. It really does help us keep doing what we love. Plus, it's risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Sign up before the players are ready and take to the court. Welcome back to the Tennis Weekly Podcast, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we're going to move on to day seven, Chris. And you were you were there, centre court. You had a great you had a great uh, order of play. And one of the matches, I actually think this is one of the matches of the tournament. Alexander Bublik versus Andrei Rublev. Rublev winning seven five six three six seven six seven six four in three hours and 17 minutes. What did you make of this match? Because to me, this was entertainment from the first point to the last. It was a great match. Um, and I think when I saw the order of play, you just think this is, and it probably this will be a bit controversial, but it is kind of the battle of someone who's very much on the gifted end of the talent spectrum versus the work hard grafting side of it. And it did make for some highly entertaining um rallies because you see so much variety from Bublik and you see that he almost plays the points in a way that no one else does. I think maybe you see a little bit with Nick Kyrgios, but he just has a go at when he's returning serve and sees what happens and sees what sticks. But I mean, it was... On match point as well. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it, that was crazy. The 135 uh, mile an hour second serve. Um, people were all holding their breaths when he had big, uh, big points on that second serve because he did do two double faults um, to end that first set. So although I would say it was highly entertaining and like the longer it went, I think the better it got um, because it did feel like for the first couple of sets um, that Bublik probably did kind of mentally wobble at certain times. Um, and from watching it, I actually didn't think that he was that interested in winning it because he really wasn't making great decisions at key moments. And it was a bit like some of the Bublik we've seen where he hadn't got the results. And had it been a best of three set match, it would have been a straight sets loss. So I do feel like the format allowed him to kind of get himself back into it to pick up um, an extra couple of sets because I really think he could have won this. And I do think overall mm. he did probably play the better tennis. Well, but Well, I was going to ask you that at the start of the fifth set, were you leaning towards Bublik winning it? Because Andrew Rublev at the French Open, um, you know, was was two sets up and then uh, lost, I think, to Sonigo in, in five. And I was almost like, oh, is, is deja vu happening to, to Andre Rublev? And um, you don't necessarily think Bublik as someone who has it in them to come back from two sets to love down in a, in a Grand Slam. But um, you felt like the momentum was with him. It was with him. And I really do think that it was a fantastic comeback to get to the fifth set. But it's very hard to keep that momentum of chasing up. And I think that's something where he probably hasn't been in that situation too many times where he's come from, you know, two sets, two sets down. And that takes an awful lot of energy, and a lot of focus in order to be able to kind of get yourself back into that situation. And he did have a bit of a, a mental lapse again to get broken. So it is a tricky one in terms of who you would think going to that fifth set. Um, I I was sat with my friend Alina who thought there's no way that Rublev would wobble and I was like Bublik has this so I was once again incorrect relatively I feel like Rublev stayed pretty calm for a player who you know was going through the yeah. same motions uh, you know he was he went through through the you know in, in, in his French Open match so I was actually impressed with the maturity from that kind of yeah his temperament from, from that aspect he was way more annoyed in the first couple of sets uh, than he was in the sets he lost I'm not really sure why that was, but I think he turned negative quite early. Maybe you just want to get out of his system. <laughs> Maybe. I think that first set was, it was so tight. And I do think the Bublik was playing the better tennis um, that maybe he was frustrated that he wasn't able to make more of an impact. And then he got gifted the set at the end, but it was a great match. And I think you said it was one of the best uh, match of the tournament. And I think yeah. that was kind of the theme of center court for that day. I mean, just the final thing I want to talk about on this match was that that winner, that miracle shot by by Rublev mm. um, towards the end of the match. What was it like experiencing that in the the arena? Because Bublik led out, let out this scream that was like, you think he's ended the point there with a, a double-handed backhand winner up the line. But Rublev with the dive, getting to the ball and then steering it back in play to win the point. What did you make of that sequence? I think it was probably one of the best points I've ever seen live because everyone threw everything at that point. And people were gasping because they couldn't believe how hard Bublik was going after the ball in that point. And for Rublev, not only to get the ball back, but to also end up on, on the grass and manage to keep his balance and get that ball in. And I think he just said he just did everything he could. He was surprised as we were. So it was <laughs> one of the best reactions I've ever seen from um, a centre-court crowd because... 
they just loved this match and that was probably the highlight of the whole match because both of them were doing everything they could in that in that final set and Rublev found something that was really magic and he said he said he'd never be able to do it again when he spoke to Annabelle Croft um but yes. he, he, we do love him he's so humble but um <laughs> I mean it looked like he knew what he was doing but he, he um he definitely lit up centre court that day. I mean, following that match, we had Igor Sviontek versus Belinda Bencic, which was equally, if not even more um, dramatic because Sviontek had to save match points uh, to come through this. I am I am impressed that, that Sviontek even just came, th- came through this match. It was 6-7, 7-6, 6-3. How impressed were you with, with Sviontek? Did you think she was done and dusted when those match points happened? I did. I really did. I did not see it going to three. Nerves of steel. Well, I think what was interesting um, about this match and from Iga was that she didn't... um, She still had some of her mannerisms when she plays against someone um, who is hitting very like a big hitter and she's maybe not playing her absolute best like in the first set, for example. And then she kind of ends up losing those in straight sets um, because she gets quite stressed out, you feel like, because things aren't quite going her way. But... Um, it just felt like on those big points, she just went for it. Um, and it seems like maybe that's something she's doing with her like sports psych- uh, psychologist that she works very closely with. But she almost played some of her best tennis in the most clutch moments um, because she did get broken back after going a break up in that second set. Um, and it did look like when she would went down, having been a break up, that maybe the writing was on the wall. Um, and then she just lifted her game. And we've seen that so many times with Serena, with great champions that are able to find that extra level when it matters most. And and she did. And some of the shots she hit when she was uh, match point down, um, she did not wait for someone to miss a shot. And I think that's something which is so great to see is that people are competing at the highest level. Matches are being won, not lost. And sure, Bentrich did miss some shots she should have made um, kind of in that third set. But in those first two sets, I think it really was sort of um, tit for tat. And I was super impressed. But one thing, Joel, I have to say that I was not impressed by because I knew this would happen. Eager loses the first set. I'm queuing to get back onto center court. And I know I've got a lot of time to get back on because there's no way Eager staying on court. She's obviously going to take a bathroom break. And I just think it's so predictable. And sure, maybe she did use the bathroom, whatever, but it is just this thing where if you can predict someone's going to go for a bathroom break after losing a set, <laughs> it feels like that's not the sort of number one behavior that I'm looking mm. for, I think. Well, I was watching on TV and apparently she took a, a notebook into uh, into um, into the loo. So uh... it wasn't about a bathroom break. <laughs> no, it was so well, yeah, obvious. Well, she took some reading material. It certainly obviously helped her. But yeah, I mean, she would have been disappointed, I think, after that first set because she had enough break point opportunities to not make it go to a tie break and uh, I think all credit goes to Bencic there for making it so competitive and stealing um, that first set because that really she did should have won though the match don't you think is there credit for Bencic I still think there is I mean you see how how taped her arm was I, I was actually at, at some point thinking was she actually going to last um, you know last uh, last the match but um, yeah I, I know she'll be obviously gutted that she didn't get it done and there's only so much credit you can give, I guess, to someone who has match points and, and ends up in defeat. But um, yeah, I think it was the scare that Sviontek needed. And um, unlike some of the other favourites who've had more comfortable rides through to uh, you know the quarterfinals, I think this is definitely going to spur her on. And, and who's to say, you know, she couldn't go and, and win a Grand Slam from match point down, which would be Do you real think she something. Will, Joel? 
You predicted it earlier. I, I didn't think she could win this slam yeah. until I watched this match. And I really think that she could. I think if, if that does happen, she definitely will need to give a bonus to her uh, her sports psychologist. Um, but um, we also had a really fascinating match between Victoria Azarenka and Alina Svitolina. Now, this was going on at the same time. I was kind of dual screening it um, at home. Svitolina came through in a final set championship tiebreak, 2-6-6-4-7-6. It was 11 9 in that championship tiebreak. I mean, again, Chris, this was an incredible, incredible match. I was just thinking, you go, girls. <laughs> I was just thinking the women's tennis on show right now on the on the main courts. This is what we love to see. And um, yeah, Azarenka, Svitolina both brought it. The only thing I was a little bit disappointed with was how it ended because Victoria Azarenka was booed off the court um, you could hear that audibly from the crowd um, because there was no handshake. It was deja vu like the French Open and this was not how it should have ended. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a shame when it ends like that. Um, Azarenka has been one of the players who's been most outspoken in terms of being against the war. Um, she very much is a citizen of the world in terms of where she spends her time, where she's based, where she's raising her son. But this is, again, we all knew this would be coming. We all saw this coming. Um, it's just a shame that the crowd actually do react in this way because um, the point is made from a personal level, well, not personal, but from a belief level, uh, but it's a personal decision not to shake the hand. Um, and it just she, feels like She it... suggested they had had too much pimps. Wow. But I mean, that... <laughs> That's probably true, to be honest. It, it was a nice day. Um, and the PIMS is being served in larger containers this year. So mm. maybe people had had too many PIMS. PIMS is to blame um, for these, uh, yeah, the political, the furor that, that is happening. No, um, the, crowd, the crowd is a bit more dramatic this year, I'd say, Joel. There's a few more, you know, people uh, sit to pass questioning something to the umpire. He did get booed also. Um, well, it's interesting. Are, some are, people are ready are, to go. Some people are hypothesizing the, the number of late finishes is leading to kind of more raucous crowds um, as we get into the, you know, as we get into the nighttime. I will just say on the, on the Azarenka kind of booing moment, I will, I, I think, I think the crowd were out of order and I do think Wimbledon have an opportunity here to just to announce something before the match starts in terms of Svitolina is not going to give a handshake at the net. So at there least the no crowd... Agree. Yeah, so at least the crowd are, are educated or are aware because I saw you know, Sandy Bolton, the, the Wimbledon chief exec, come out and, and say she thinks the crowd are, are knowledgeable to an extent that they don't necessarily need this information imparted on them. Well, I would disagree with that. I think, 100% you need the information. I agree with you, Joel. I don't think you can assume that from the crowd who are just kind of going out for you know, a nice day at the tennis. Um, I think that context needs to be added. And I know Sabalenka has echoed those thoughts. So I really hope that Wimbledon do, do think about that um, more than just kind of be a bit dismissive which is the impression i feel like i i got from um the the you know sally bolton's response but um it's quite yeah. non-committal i would say mm. joel isn't it of saying oh the fans know but i think the fans would never boo someone in that no. situation i think the fans don't if, know if to be they honest knew, they wouldn't know because if they knew um then they would be fine with it I, I i assume whereas if they don't know it's because they think someone is just refusing to shake someone's hand which is all yeah. all very odd at a wimbledon match so i agree with you say something up front <laughs> <laughs> um, and everyone could just get on with it. 
Well, we are we are running out of time, but the one other match I want to put a big spotlight on is Novak Djokovic versus Hubert Hercaj, which you saw the majority of um, on your centre court order of play. It finished. Um, it finished today. Djokovic got the job done in four sets. Um, yeah, he did drop a set. He won the first two tie breaks. Now, before us going into recording, you actually said to me, Hubert Hercaj should have won this. Do you genuinely believe, do you genuinely believe that statement? Because I was wondering, how, how much have you had to drink this evening? I stand by that fully, Joel. Um, I will be potentially going to a pub after recording, okay. but I am, I'm not in any way intoxicated right now. <laughs> I, I was there um, and I also was not intoxicated. So I, I genuinely do think that um, from watching okay, it- Okay, what's three... your argument? What's your argument that Hubert Hercaz should have won that match? I've never seen a better serving display in real life ever the numbers were crazy one for one was one of the serves he hit um he also uh was hitting his spots hitting lines left right and center he didn't even need to hit it that hard he was serving so well uh he was six three up in the first set tie break um and he is unfortunately he the nature of him is that he cut he cracks under pressure he cannot get a first serve in and make a good shot selection when he is it does go wanting. His decision-making does go wanting at it the really most does. He's awkward a, he's a moments, Davidich, doesn't a it? A Davidich Fakina in that sense, mm. because that he he never had missed a serve prior to that in that tie break. So he's first set, her catch. Second set, in the tie break, he gets himself back into a positive situation. He does have another set point. He's playing some of the best tennis I've seen him play. Completely fluffs it again. So obviously you could say that Djokovic had the advantage at that moment but I think had he won that first set he'd have had a lot more belief in that second set tie break and then obviously he did take a set um and the restart so for me it was a case of what a missed opportunity from a player who was playing as well as they can play and Djokovic actually not be able to do anything on return against him it just seemed like if you can't win tie breaks what are we doing yes it was so hard for Djokovic to find a rhythm given how well Hubert Hercash was serving. I mean, he served 73% first serves in across the match, 81% of those he won. It was even more ridiculous in that set one. To think Novak Djokovic won that set on a tie break, despite Hubert Hercash serving 90% first serves in. Agreeing with me, Joel. So if he's serving 90-something percent of first serves or winning 90% of first Mm. serves, he made some awful serving decisions when he was up in key moments in those tie breaks. I have Djokovic to say. has not lost a match on centre court in 10 years since since that Andy Murray Wimbledon final. And he just finds a way to win regardless of the level he that really you does. are playing. I think to a similar degree, Jordan Thompson, he played a fantastic match, I think, against Novak Djokovic. Lost in straight sets. And uh, I, I I think the same can be said of Hubert Hercatch. He did as much as he could humanly possibly do. Oh, I don't think so. Because when it came down to a couple of service choices, he went middle of the box on a first serve because he wanted okay. to make a first I'm serve. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. But um, yeah, I, I will just add though. I mean, this match did get carried over. And the the schedule you saw had three matches that did not finish by the curfew. Now, there was no mitigation here. There was no rain delay, you know, need for the roof, well, roof to be closed by by daylight. But we had three matches. They did not get complete. Where do you stand on on this curfew situation? Because me and Kim spoke about it before. We think it needs to be brought forward. 
I feel like for me, this is the nail in the coffin. There were no mitigating factors and we still didn't get the order of play done and dusted. I completely agree. I think 11 is way too early for a curfew for a slam. Um, I think tennis should be finished before then. But the nature of how the game is now that if you do want three matches on or some maybe they have four matches on, I think sometimes um, at the French Open, for example, they do start earlier, um, but that can go late. And it's unacceptable if you're a player to go to court knowing you won't be able to finish it that Mm. evening. It's such a weird situation because it also, and I've been in situations where uh, you're competing and you have a time limit on how you're, when you have a court till or something like that. And it's so impressive, I do think, from both Hercatch and Djokovic that they probably knew they wouldn't finish it. But they, and they, and Djokovic obviously was able to finish on the Friday by some miracle. He managed to get himself through at 10 43 or something because that had the Andy Murray match on as well. But if you're Novak Djokovic, at some point you've got to get frustrated that sure it's great for BBC numbers, sure it's great to have a full day of play to 11 p.m. But he doesn't want to be coming back the next day and playing two more sets and then coming back the day after because the nature of the tournament is you play every other day. And as you say, no mitigating circumstances. There's no reason they start half an hour later than court number one. I fully don't believe there's any reason. And half an hour would have probably been the reason why they would have played another set. Yeah, it was it was a bit odd because Sally Bolton again came out and, and responded it responded to this head on. I admire her for coming out actually and actually giving us some some answers, but her response to this was around TV rating TV ratings and, and TV audiences and, and saying that they're they're really, really great at the moment. But I don't think the players really care about TV audiences. I think they care about getting these matches done and making sure that they're, you know, for the winners anyway, making sure that they're fresh they're fresh, can have a day off. And focus on you know on the next tie. And who's to say Novak Djokovic? He has got Andre Rublev next. That is tomorrow. Do you think that Djokovic um, is at a disadvantage given he's had to play? He's going to have to have had to play um, you know today where Rublev's obviously had the day off. When it comes to Novak Djokovic, I don't think kind of anything really matters except for himself and how he's playing. We've seen all sorts of things all sorts of adversity that he's he's struggled against and and he's come up trumps against much more difficult circumstances than having to, you know, return to SW19 an extra day. Um, one thing I would say on this that I kind of witnessed firsthand was play, people camp to watch Andy Murray play. People camp to watch these matches and you're scheduling it so they can't see the end of the match that they, that they camp to see. And you see people who have come up from that match who would do anything and have done a lot to try and... Some have camped two nights to see Andy Murray play on centre court against Sitsipas and or whatever situation it is in, and you still don't get to see yeah. that. So It's not good enough, is it, to say... You I know, don't think it is good enough to say TV ratings because you can have good TV ratings and, and wrap up at 11. To think you've got Novak Djokovic fans coming home and being like, yeah, I'm a big Novak Djokovic fan and I got to see two tie-break sets. That's it. It's, 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 yeah. it's a half a match. It was half a match, Joel Ryan. It's, it's uh, yeah. So um, yeah. Hopefully that gets changed, but who knows? We'll we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. I mean, very very quickly, we are run- we are running out of time. But um, we had Safulin come through against Denis Shapovalov in four sets. That was a bit of an upset. Um, Yannick Sinner came through against Daniel Alahi Galan in straight sets. Jesse Pagula as well against Leia Serenko six one six three, and Marketa Vondrusova is through against Maria Bushkova. Very, very quickly, Chris. Safulin over Shapovalov. I cannot believe 
that result happened, I may have messaged the WhatsApp group and said, is Safulin the most budget round four Grand Slam singles, men's singles finalist of all time? I think the question to me now is, is he the most budget quarter finalist at a men's Grand Slam singles of all time? I think we're going to find it hard to find someone else. There must be some of those surprise packages. Listeners, let us know. Are there any more surprise quarterfinals? I mean, we've got two debutants. That has not happened, I think, for a long, long time um, in, in Wimbledon in terms of the men's singles competition, Safulin and Newbanks. But um, yeah, good, good, good on him. But yeah, he's going to have a tough test, I feel, in the quarters. Um, let's quickly talk collector set. Yes, indeed, Joel. I've been crunching the numbers behind the scenes. <laughs> And I can tell you that finally we are doing a bit better collectively as the Tennis Weekly community. And we have got a number of players who have managed to get um, two predictions. We also have two players and um, who've competing who've managed to get three. Wow. So David Wilson, you're doing very well. And Celine Haddad. Must be a relative of Haddad Meyer. I've not inquired. <laughs> um, they have both got three rights so Ooh, far. Well done. And then, unfortunately, Joel, we have to. If she's still listening at this point, Kim, another shout out for your fantastic predictions. Oh, no. Um, Kim's on three Kim, as well. Kim is also now on three, given <sighs> the Kvitova result. So there are three people who are currently in the race, but it could be that three is enough to make you to the tie break. Okay. So I'm hoping... Um, in order for Kim not to win, that Iga does not make the final. So oh, let's see how that okay. goes. Okay, well, let's see. Let's see. It's all. It's still all to play for. It's still all to play for. Um, we've got day nine tomorrow. Shiontek, Svitolina on centre court, then Rublev, Djokovic. And then number one, we've got Jesse Pagula, Marketa, Von Drusova, Yannick Sinner against Roman Safulin. Very, very quickly, Svitolina, Svitolina, what are you thinking? Svitolina's going to win that one. Straights? Straights. Okay. Rublev, Djokovic. Djokovic, of course. In three? Uh, in three, yeah. Pagula, Von Drusova. Ooh. I think Von Drusova's playing some great tennis. I'm going to... I think she's heading back to a semi. Ooh. And Sinner Safulin. That's a straightforward run, right? Safulin, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. There we go. I'm I'm taking that as your predictions are so bad, the opposite is going to happen. Um, okay. Right. Yep. So that's what you're going for then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode of the Tennis Weekly podcast. Remember to subscribe to us to stay up to date on all the action still to come from Wimbledon in week two. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcasting platforms out there. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or email the show. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok at Tennis Weekly Pod. You can email the show tennisweeklypod at gmail.com or check out our website tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back on Wednesday at Tennis Weekly HQ for our quarterfinals Wimbledon catch up. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>